Good afternoon, everyone. Man, it's, uh, it's amazing to be here. Um, I walked this same uh, room uh, over 15 years ago uh, when I was in youth group. Uh, I grew up in Cherry Hill, um, actually in Voorhees, but, you know, I always say Cherry Hill. Um, but um, to be up here, I am so uh, <laughs> amazed at what, um, at God's sense of humor in bringing me all the way back here. Um, obviously, a different church, uh, different, different people. Um, but um, just, you know, uh, I feel so blessed uh, to even just be standing here, uh, just being able to share the word and the gospel. Um, if, this is your, if this is your first time here at Metro, uh, or if you're new or visiting, man, we're just so grateful and thankful that you came to join us today. Uh, Metro is um, a church that really uh, stands for what it says it stands for. Um, there's lots of places that um, have a list of core values. Uh, there's lots of places that say they're about the gospel. Um, but one thing I've, I've come to really know and love about this place is that uh, it's for real. Um, and um, I've been a uh, recipient of that blessing uh, for, for quite some time now. Um, and I stand here not <laughs> uh, based on just my own, you know, upbringing. You know, Don, Donnie mentioned during the, uh, the, uh, the baptism, um, there's lots of people out there without, they have fathers, but in a lot of ways, um, fatherless. Um, and uh, I was one of those people. Um, and um, in a lot of ways, Donnie kind of took me under his wing, get, took a chance on me, fresh, you know, uh, uh, still in college. Um, lots of bumps and bruises um, along the way of, you know, the past decade of doing ministry here at Metro. And um, just, uh, I am not who I am uh, without uh, my brother here. So thank you. Um, and... Um, yeah, so let's get into the word. Um, today's, uh, today's passage comes from Romans 12, uh, verses 1 to 8. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophecy, prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. 
This is God's word. Um, I've been hooked on this show recently. Um, uh, it's called Ted Lasso. Uh, and I'm sure some of you might have seen this. Um, it's about this American football coach um, who unexpectedly uh, becomes uh, the coach of an English uh, football team, uh, but football in the English sense, so uh, what we call soccer uh, here in America. Um, and he knows nothing about uh, soccer. Um, but what sets him apart is he has this incredible ability to inspire uh, and bring out the best in people. Um, and even the reason why he gets hired to go over there is really not really to win games. <laughs> um, it's actually to lose. Um, but as the seasons unfold, uh, the show kind of goes beyond just cheering for this underdog team uh, and focuses on the story of each character. And uh, one character that I personally really resonated with uh, was Roy Kent. Um, Roy Kent was a player that turned into a coach uh, for this team. Uh, and he's kind of known for being like this very gruff, uh, tough, strong will, kind of tight-lipped, um, very quick-tempered, gets angry very easily, uh, not very open, um, that, kind of, that kind of guy. And um, throughout the series, we kind of see Roy uh, navigate different kinds of challenges. Um, he has to retire from the sport um, that he's just loved and been hailed uh, in many ways. Um, he has to deal with a painful breakup. Uh, and he also has to face a lot of his own insecurities. Um, and, and so in the last episode of the whole series, and uh, don't worry, I'm not going to really spoil anything major here for you. So um, there's a really moving moment where Roy, um, kind of in a really candid way, which is very unexpected of him, he approaches this group of other coaches, um, and he just musters up the courage to say, uh, and I'm saying this with a, li a little bit less colorful language here, um, I've been busting my tail off trying to change, but apparently I haven't done anything because I'm still me. And it's this very vulnerable moment uh, for him in this show. And so uh, one of the coaches, uh, Ted, he chimes in, um, did you want to be someone else? And Roy responds, yeah, someone better. Can people change? And so he poses this question out there. Um, and I remember sitting on my couch, and I kind of paused the show at this moment because here was this man uh, as tough and closed off as anyone can be, um, doing one of the most vulnerable things that anyone could possibly do, and it was to ask for help. Um, and I, I resonated with this just because that's just something I am so terrible at. Uh, I'm a very fearful, fearful person. Um, I want to be uh, viewed as someone who has everything put together, um, kind of come to the table with you know, all the puzzle pieces in the right spots just to say, hey, he you know, here's everything. Let me, you know, what's the next step here, right? Um, and so I remember watching this scene, and uh, um, there was a sense of like, almost like, like hope, but also like shame. As you're watching it, you're like, man, even this guy could do it, right? Um, and maybe just kind of wonder, um, what would drive someone, you know, who's never done this before um, to do that? 
Um, and, you know, maybe you can't really relate to that situation. Maybe you're the type of person who just, you know, hard on sleeve, everything just comes out. Uh, I'm jealous. Um, but I bet most of us um, have things in our lives that um, we want or need to change. Um, and uh, to go a little deeper into that, um, some of the questions that, um, you know, that I want to pose and just kind of go over today is, why do we want to change? Why do we want to shed those pounds, you know, go to the gym? Uh, why do we want more money, um, that promotion? You know, why do we pursue that special someone? Um, or say, I want to move into that neighborhood, go to that school district. Um, and, and in other ways, is why do we feel the need to even attend church more regularly? Um, if you're going to get really philosophical, why do we do anything at all? Um, and the answer, I think, is ultimately quite simple. Um, we do things that are worth doing. Things that bring us meaning, uh, things that bring us purpose and happiness and security uh, and peace. And uh, in other words, we do things that give us worth. Those are the things that we long for, that we just so deeply desire and, and um, just want. Uh, and here in Romans 12, uh, the Apostle Paul delivers a very concise yet very profound summary of what it means to be a Christian. It's like a roadmap for living out the Christian faith uh, in a very short span of verses. Um, and so, two main questions. What does it look like to be a Christian? And how should a Christian live life? And Paul answers this uh, very succinctly. He says, we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. There's three main things we're going to take away today uh, from this passage regarding what it means to offer our lives as living sacrifices. Very simple. One, why should we do it? Two, how do we do it? And three, what does it look like? So number one, why should we do it? Why should we offer our bodies as living sacrifices? That sounds terrible. Um, for the past several weeks uh, here at Metro, um, we've been studying the book of Romans in our series uh, called The Pillars of Faith. And uh, Romans, um, if you haven't been kind of walking through this with us, um, is widely considered to be one, if not one of the most important books in the Bible because of its focus on the essential aspects uh, of the Christian faith uh, written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, and it's a letter, uh, also known as an epistle to the church in Rome. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, he's a prominent and just highly regarded uh, minister uh, and doctor. And he puts it this way, uh, the main teaching of Romans has been doctrinal. Uh, and when we say doctrinal, all that means is just it's been a lot of, um, you know, beliefs and statements and truths. Um, and he says, and everybody grants that from the point of view of Christian doctrine, Romans is the greatest masterpiece ever written. Uh, it is a colossal and incomparable statement of Christian truth. And he adds this about chapter 12. But now uh, the apostle comes on here to the practical section. He comes to the application uh, the book of Romans can be 
if you want to very simple, uh, simply put it, it can be broken down into two main sections. Uh, it's what scholars and theologians would call the indicative uh, of the gospel. And these are found in chapters 1 through 11. Uh, and then there are the imperatives of the gospel. Those are found in chapters 12 to 16. Uh, in other words, chapters 1 to 11, they teach us the truths and facts um, while chapters 12 to 16, uh, they teach us the implications of those truths and facts. Another way to put this is chapters 1 through 11 talks about Jesus as Savior, and chapters 12 to 16 talks about Jesus as Lord, what Jesus is as King in our life. Um, and both are critical. Both are critical to living the Christian life. Uh, one without the other uh, would be an incomplete gospel. Uh, too much emphasis on one versus the other would also be an incomplete gospel. And if Jesus is only Savior and not King, if we receive grace but there's no life change, then that's what we would call hedonism. It would be a pursuit of pleasure and comfort. But if Jesus is only King and he's not Savior, if we receive the truth but if there's no grace, that's what we call legalism. That's an overemphasis on good works. Those two, um, you know, a lot of camps and a lot of theologians would say those are two sides of the same coin. Um, but all of us here sitting here today probably reside or oscillate in between these two camps. Um, and depending, it could, it could depend on what, you know, what day it is, morning, evening, it could be um, just a, maybe a certain season or circumstance in life that you're facing. Um, and Paul invites us in this passage to see the importance of both the law and grace in this passage and how the gospel is not just a mixture, a blending or a middle ground of the two, but a whole different, new, amazing way. It is a life-changing way, the gospel. In verse 1 of chapter 12, Paul starts uh, by saying, therefore. He's referring to the first 11 chapters uh, of Romans, which are all about the knowledge, right? The truth and the facts. And, and so he's presented his facts. He's presented his truths to us. Um, and like any good lawyer, he's now he's, he's pivoting to start his closing argument. Um, Reading back to uh, chapter, ver um, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Paul is presenting us with a passionate, pastoral plea. He says, I urge you, brothers. He is expressing such a strong desire uh, for Christians. And in this case, brothers... Uh, signified the whole church. It meant brothers and sisters. Um, and he continues in this, in this verse, in view of God's mercy. And so what mercy is he talking about? Um, and here are all the different mercies that Paul is referring to and that, that were laid out in chapters 1 through 11. One, justification from the guilt and penalty of sin. More simply put, just as if I had never sinned, and just as if I'd always obeyed. Number two, adoption in Jesus and identification with Christ. What a mercy that is to be adopted into his family, 
to be his sons and to be his daughters. Number three, we're placed under grace, not law. Number four, we are given the Holy Spirit to live within us, to help us, to convict us, to challenge us. Number five, there is a promise of help in all affliction. We're never alone. Number six, there's an assurance of a standing in God's election. In other, in other words, there's nothing we've done to earn God's grace, and there's nothing we can do to lose it. Number seven, there's a confidence of coming glory. There's a bright hope in, uh, for tomorrow. Number eight, there's a confidence of no separation from the love of God. And number nine, there's a confidence in God's continued faithfulness. He is unchanging. He is reliable. He's trustworthy. How, how many of us live every day just searching for these things constantly in our lives and just coming up empty because we, we go to, you know, worldly and uh, put these hopes in things that are finite and will ultimately change and fail in many ways. Um, and so Paul, Paul continues, and he says, So in view of these mercies, now offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Now, with all the knowledge that we have from chapters 1 through 11, um, here's what we do. Um, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Uh, and what Paul is saying is important for our context and culture. You know, I look around this room today. Um, you know, there are a lot of intelligent uh, and educated, even seminary educated people sitting here. But what Paul is saying is this. Knowledge isn't enough, and knowledge doesn't produce faith. Christianity isn't just about knowledge. And you have to ask yourself, has that knowledge shaped you? Has it changed you? Have the seeds of that knowledge sprouted and bloomed into a beautiful flower? Or has it produced good fruit? Or has it just laid dormant, producing nothing? Or even worse, a tree of thorns? Mahatma Gandhi once famously said of the Christian faith, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And Gandhi's assessment was that far too often, Christians don't represent Christ. They are nothing like Christ. They don't do Christ justice. They actually repel people from Christ. And so, what does it mean then to be like Christ? What does it mean then to, to live a Christian life? It brings us back to this question, right? Um, it means, as, as Paul wrote, to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. The term living sacrifice wouldn't have really made much sense uh, to Paul's readers um, in Rome at that time um, because they were using um, dead animals to sacrifice. Um, and that's because Paul wasn't talking here about the sacrifice of animals. He was talking about something much more personal he was talking about you. He was talking about me. He was talking about us. We are going to be the, we are that sacrifice. 
And so the old way was much easier. Because you see, when you sacrifice an animal, it's a one-time event. But offering yourself as a living sacrifice is different. It means constantly and consciously giving yourself to God in every moment. It's not something that ends. Um, and it's an ongoing commitment that requires your continual dedication every day, every hour, in every moment from the easiest to the toughest. Uh, Tim Keller, um, famous, well-known contemporary preacher, um, he said it like this. What it means to live a Christian life is that you put to death the right to live life as you choose. You put to death the idea that you belong to yourself. You put to death the idea that you know best what should happen in your life. You put that to death and you give it to God. And it feels like death to really say, you know best and I just trust you. Here's what you say in your word and I don't like it, but I'm going to do it. I don't choose anymore. It feels like a death, but on the other side, it's life. That's why it's a living sacrifice. It's a sacrifice that leads to life. Now, imagine a child uh, that wants to touch a hot stove. Um, they want to put their fingers into the electrical socket um, or stick something in there, uh, or they would just want to eat candy and stay up all night. Uh, and so when a parent stops them from doing so, oh man, it's like the end of the world uh, for that child, is it not? Um, they're going to gonna pout, they're going to get upset, um, they're going to throw a tantrum uh, because it seems like their world is ending. Um, and your child may think of you as a tyrant uh, rather than a parent. But um, would that prevent you from safeguarding them? In the same way, we are like children uh, with a loving heavenly father Perhaps we don't know everything. Perhaps we are a bit short-sighted in terms of what is good and what is not good for us. Um, and I want to remind us, all sitting here, we are sons and daughters of an almighty God. He is a loving Father. But He is also our Lord. He is our King. Now, people often think, Jesus died for me, and uh, now I need to make it right with him. Um, but the truth is, our sacrifices, um, they don't make things right. Uh, and thankfully, um, they don't. Um, you see, because Jesus made it completely and forever right for us on the cross for all time. Um, rather, we sacrifice to honor and please God. Uh, and there's an important uh, distinction uh, here, especially uh, in the Reformed faith. Um, you know, as Americans, we often struggle to uh, connect with the concept of a king, I think. Um, our society kind of values uh, democracy, which is great. Um, and it, it values individualism, um, which I, I, I also enjoy. Um, but, you know, it makes us look also skeptically uh, at those in positions of power. Um, and so, you know, we say, it's my money, it's my work, it's my body, it's my thoughts. Um, 
And in this kind of American worldview, um, it says that you are the master of your life. You are the master of your fate. Uh, it's the American dream. And if you work hard enough, you will achieve it. Uh, and so throughout history, kings have been portrayed as these tyrannical, oppressive, arrogant, corrupt, deceitful, incompetent, and foolish people. However, God, as a heavenly king, is vastly unlike these earthly kings. And he is worthy of offering ourselves as living sacrifices. In other words, he is worthy of our worship. What is worship? The word worship comes from an old English word. Uh, it's called worthship. And it literally means to give something worth, uh, to demonstratively attribute value. And so to worship God on one hand means to say, I give all of myself to you. And yet on the other hand, it says, I receive all of my worth from you. Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful uh, kind of dual nature of, of what it means to give worth and receive worth. Um, and I kind of want to contrast this to a typical understanding of worship today. Uh, I've been leading worship for a long time. Um, I could talk about worship just by itself for probably, uh, you know, a long time, but nobody wants to hear that. So um, worship, worship is often viewed, um, and it was this, this, I'm, I'm saying this as someone who, who thought this and believed this uh, for a long time. Worship is often viewed as a specific time or event or place or, you know, a time of singing. Um, and while it's certainly not less than those things, uh, it is so much more. Um, and so worship has become like this scheduled part of the week or the day. Um, and um, it's, it's, it, it's kind of become like this sacrifice that we make, that we make um, when in reality, we're always worshiping, always worshiping. Um, and so we've come to rely on Sundays or when we sing songs of praise or, um, you know, as our time to worship. This is my time to, you know, give everything to the Lord. Um, but everything we do is connected to worship. Um, and uh, what we, ultimately what we worship uh, guides much of what we do uh, and why we do it. Um, and oftentimes it's very subconscious, um, but we are often guided by what we desire most, um, by what we worship. Um, and so, one other kind of side note I want to make here is that worship can also be uh, very easily confused with emotions. Um, and though our worship is not void of emotion, um, uh, and in many ways it's enhanced by emotion, um, worship that is overly imbalanced um, with how we feel uh, versus rooted gospel truths can um, really lead to uh, spiritual highs and lows uh, that depend on our mood, our environment. Um, and so Paul makes it clear that our spiritual worship is to be in view of God's mercy. Uh, and so it's based on the truths and facts of who God is and what he's done for us. Uh, and that should give us some, some hope and some grounding. Um, 
You see, because God created all of us uh, with this innate desire uh, to worship. And the important question that we have to ask ourselves is, uh, who or what is the focus of our worship? Another way to say that is, where have we offered ourselves as a sacrifice? You see, this concept of offering ourselves as a sacrifice, it's not something that is going to be a novel idea. It's not something that just, oh, I'm going to start doing this now. We do it every day, all the time. Um, And um, identifying this object of our worship, it's critical uh, because it paves the way for true transformation. But how do we bring about change then? And (laughs) I think the real question, if we're honest with ourselves, do we truly desire change? I think, you know, you have these little shower thoughts in the morning and uh, you're going to say, I'm going to change everything. I'm going to eat better. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to finish all my work by 2 o'clock. And then it's 2 o'clock and you've done absolutely none of those things. And you've had a pizza and a hamburger. Um, um, so how do we do it? How do we do this? If you even want to. Um, Paul writes in verse 2, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. In verse 2, Paul wants us to clearly see what it means to be a Christian. It is total transformation as a person, and it is a blueprint for how to change. Um, There are two imperatives uh, right here in this this verse. The first one is, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. And Paul commands the Christian here to stop living in a worldly manner. Verse 1 and 2, they run parallel to what Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, uh, verse 22 to 24. And here specifically, um, in this do not conform, he's talking about what it means to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. To be conformed uh, means to assume an (coughs) outward uh, expression. Uh, It's something that you put on and doesn't come from within. And uh, it's important to remember here uh, who Paul is talking about. Paul is, in, in Romans uh, 12, he's talking to professed Christians in the church. And so when he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, he's saying, stop living in a worldly manner. You're living in contradiction to your heart. In other words, he's saying, remember those mercies? You've already been transformed. So stop conforming to the world. You see, the problem is when our our worship is off, uh, when it's centered on someone or something apart from God, we are conforming. And to compound this problem uh, is that we are often blind to our conforming. And to go to the next step, we're blind to our blindness. This is especially true for us as Christians. You know, we might cover ourselves in theological jargon. Uh, We might try to showcase all of our good deeds. 
uh, everything we do, and we might compare ourselves to others. All the while, we're deceiving ourselves. We convince ourselves that attending church regularly, serving, and even the reading the Bible makes us good enough. And when we don't do those things, I need to get, I need to get right. I need to, I need to make myself feel good and, and do all these things again before I can even show my face. A lot of times we assume that since no one is pointing out any of our flaws, uh, hey, we must be fine. I must be good to go. Meanwhile, we're engaged in gossip that's tearing others down. We're using others to fill our social and relational needs. We're overworking in our jobs. Uh, we're withholding generosity while indulging uh, ourselves. We're promiscuous with our minds and our bodies in our relationships, among many other things. The second imperative we see here in this verse is be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul says, rather than conforming to the pattern of this world, uh, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And to be transformed, that requires inward change. It's the hard one. It's inside out rather than outside in. You see, most of us, we try to change by changing our outward conduct. Um, I need to read my Bible more. I need to pray more. When things, when things are wrong in our lives, the first things that we hear is, oh, I just, need to, I just need to read the word more. I need to spend more time in prayer. And those aren't really, they're not wrong <laughs> to a certain degree. Um, but I think where we get stuck is that those would be fruits that come um, from a renewed mind. Um, but that isn't the tr kind of transformation that Paul is talking about here. What Paul is saying is that our minds uh, need to be constantly uh, renewed. Uh, they constantly need to be reset. They're constantly needing to be reordered um, with God as our king. In other words, we, have to, we must worship God more than anyone or anything. And so when God is king in our lives, we receive all the benefits as citizens of his kingdom. Um, but we often uh, don't live as citizens of his kingdom, but we live as orphans. So we're constantly searching and searching and searching. Uh, we wouldn't be alone. Um, when we look at the word, um, when we consider even Adam and Eve, uh, their mistake, right, was not just solely in eating of this forbidden fruit. Uh, the real issue was that they desired to be like God. And so they prior prioritized themselves over their worship of God, which led to the eating of the fruit. Their worship was reordered. You see that? And that which led them to doing that, which led to their ultimate downfall there. Similarly, you have Cain, who killed his brother Abel, the actual murder itself uh, was not the root of the problem. That's something that happened. Um, but it was the manifestation of a lot of envy and frustration, revealing that for Cain, God was not enough uh, in his life. 
goes on. David's story with Bathsheba involved more than just adultery and murder. You see, it stemmed from a desire for power and a shame to hide. What did it highlight? It highlighted that God was not enough for David either. Peter's denial, Judas's betrayal, they were all driven by their desires and their preoccupations. Their actions reflected what they worshipped in their hearts. And so what led to these decisions? What led to these actions? What you desire, what you want, what you're preoccupied by, your nightmares, your daydreams, are driven by what you worship. Think of it like this. Your mind is the rudder of the whole person. When you think of a large ship, right, um, these giant uh, ships that are, you know, transporting, you know, whether it's the Navy or, you know, shipping containers, what have you, um, they can be steered just by a little rudder at the back. And so there's this whole being in person that's just easily being moved by just a quick mind adjustment, left, right, left, right. You see, when your mind is renewed to the right thing, you go in the right direction. When it's off, you're going to go in the wrong direction. And notice you're either going right or wrong. There's no alternative here. Um, You're either moving toward God or you're moving away from God. And so how do we change? Uh, We change what we worship. You see, when Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth uh, as a human being, That was not his true essence. Um, His true nature is actually one that is divine and eternal. Uh, And so when we see him as a baby in the manger, or we see him as a young boy uh, in the temple, or even later as a carpenter, um, you're not seeing his true essence, um, but rather you're seeing the human form um, that he willingly took on. You see, Jesus willingly embraced humanity He chose to conform to this earthly life, which would ultimately cost him his life. You see, at Gethsemane, when Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours be done, Jesus had desires. Uh, The world would tell him, once again, you are the master of your life. You are the master of your fate. But Jesus willingly surrendered himself. He offered his body as a living sacrifice to take on all our sin. And over and over, every day that he was on the earth, he had a chance to improve his circumstance. He had a chance to exercise his authority and and power, but he resisted. And so Jesus was constantly sacrificing himself. Every day, he was offering himself as a living sacrifice every day. And on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was saying, I've given and sacrificed everything, but there is no mercy in view for me. There's only wrath. That's all I see. And with his final cry, he cried out, into your hands I commit my spirit. You see, to the end, all Jesus had and wanted was his father. Even in great pain and sorrow, Jesus still commits his spirit into his father's hands. You see, the love, security, and power that we tirelessly work for and run after 
is ours in Jesus, who stood in, and, uh, who stood in our place as the perfect, holy, and pleasing sacrifice. You see, the wrath that we deserve was satisfied on the cross by the blood of Jesus. This is true love. This is a love that looks at us at our worst and says, I'm crazy about you. This is a true security. If it is a security that is unchanging and eternal. And this is true power. It's a power that says, I have all that I need and I am wanting for nothing. I have all that I need and I am wanting for nothing. Can you, can you imagine a uh, your heart just wanting for nothing. I know, I know my heart is always wanting for something. <laughs> and, and it, it uh, you know, it, that's what drives my own sinful tendencies. Um, wouldn't that change you if you knew, believed deep inside your heart that you were wanting for nothing? Um, it can. Um, and you can do that. Um, and so how much faith do we need to do this? We need just enough faith. In verse 3, um, and so what does it look like? For by grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself more, uh, with sober judgment uh, in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. When Roy Kent uh, asked the other coaches for help, um, while it was somewhat of a surprise, you had already kind of started slowly seeing signs pointing uh, toward this transformation. Um, and it started with a Karen Bond for one of his teammates. Um, and uh, in verses 3 to 8, uh, Paul moves into talking about gifts. Uh, but the focus is not so much on the gifts themselves, but... It, it's about thinking rightly of ourselves, our place uh, in this community, uh, in this world, in this kingdom. Um, and so uh, it's to be able to look at ourselves with sober judgment, um, not too high, not too low. Um, and, and sober estimation goes both ways. It, does, it doesn't mean just, I need to be less prideful. It also means you should have a, you should have a confidence uh, in the midst of your failures and your shame. Um, and um, more importantly, these verses remind us um, that we are united as one. Um, and um, there is none greater than the, uh, than the other, uh, regardless of gifting here in this community. Um, but rather, um, what binds us together uh, and what makes everything equal is that we all have a great need for saving faith. And we have all received that saving faith together. Uh, this, this unites us in our gospel mission, uh, and it helps to empower us um, to exercise all the gifts that we've received with radical freedom and generosity uh, because we recognize that everything uh, is a gift from the Lord. Um, and so with all of the power, as I look in this room, with all of the power that you wield at your, in your hands and at your disposal today, with all of your specific gifts that the, that the Lord has given to you, um, all of the freedom, all of the choice, all of the privilege that we could ever want at our disposal, how are you stewarding that for the glory of God? 
How are you stewarding those gifts to, to grow God's kingdom? Will you remember that Jesus, with all the power at his disposal, with all his authority and power, he chose to relent, he chose to submit, he chose to surrender so that you could have that power today. Let's stop using the world to measure our sacrifice. Stop using our neighbor to measure how much we should give. Let the power of the gospel determine that. Let the power of the gospel renew and shape your life. I'll close with this uh, quote from uh, Tim Keller again. Christianity isn't something you just add on to your life. It explodes your life. Will you let the power of the gospel explode your life?